Well, it's good to see all of you. And uh, for those of you joining us online, man, we're glad that you found us. And whether you're watching this live or watching this later in the week, um, it is good to come together in the name of the Lord and to sing His praises. And the, the theme that stood out to me from worship this morning is that He is worthy. Like He is worthy of every praise that we can give Him. And the song that we will sing forever in heaven says He is worthy, worthy of our praise. And so... Uh, we have been in a series titled Trust and Obey, and uh, believing that God is good, that His ways are good, trusting in those truths, and seeking to obey Him more and more, seeking to follow Him more and more closely. And so, as we seek to trust and obey, uh, we talked last week about trusting God's goodness, believing that He really is good, that He's a good, good Father, and that we can come to Him in the lowest points of our lives and, and bring our sin and our shame and our guilt and lay it before him and find his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness in exchange for that. So last week we, we looked at this idea that when we trust that God is really good, we don't try to hide. We don't try to hide our sin because hiding our, anything from God is pretty futile. And we don't try to hide it from others either. We are open and transparent and we find healing as we confess and, and we find that it's no longer necessary. Once we know whose we are and we know who he is, we can do anything in, his, in the grace and forgiveness that he brings to us. And so our bottom line last week was don't try to hide your sin. Instead, make God your hiding place. Allow him to surround you with his love and his grace. And this week, we're going to sort of change gears and transition from the trust side of trust and obey into the obey side of trust and obey. And, and the message this week is titled, Do Everything in Love. And when I read those words in 1 Corinthians 16, I, I kind of maybe did what you're doing. I said, everything? <laughs> like, like everything, God? Like, do you have teenagers? Everything, you know? And I mean, teenagers get a bad rap. Two-year-olds are much better. Like, everything? And the more I dug into it, the more I think the answer to that question is, yeah, everything. And so we're going to talk about that today as we shift that focus from obedience or from, from uh, trusting to obeying. And it's built on a foundation of trust. If you try to obey without the foundation of trusting God and living by faith, you're going to find it very, very difficult. And let's be honest, it's hard enough. It's not easy to obey God all the time. I wish I could tell you that that was the case as soon as you pray the prayer and accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You never have another temptation. You never have another struggle. You never say another thing that you wish you hadn't said. You never do another thing that you wish you hadn't done. And yet that's just not the experience that most people have in my experience. And so there's been a progression in this sermon series. We started with living by faith. That really is first. We have to believe, to rely upon, cling to, and trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that his blood pays the penalty for our sin, that he invites us into a relationship with God and into the family of God. And so that was the next part, that once we are living by faith, we trust God together. We're not in this alone. We have people. We have the family of God that he welcomes us into. And both Paul and David, who've kind of been our guides in this series as we've looked at 1 Corinthians uh, and we've looked at the Psalms and we've been navigating all of that, they both understood that we are better together, that we were not meant to do life alone, that each and every one of us was created in the image of a God who himself is a divine community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living in a perfect 
love, and trust. And so we trust God together, and last week we talked about trusting God's goodness. Now, on that foundation, we're going to seek to do everything in love. And as we've been doing throughout, we either start with a psalm and move to Paul, or we start with Paul and we move to Psalms. Uh, psalm 43.3 kind of gives us a Cliff's Notes version of how we do this. How do we do everything in love? Psalm 43.3 tells us, send forth your light and your truth. Let them guide me. It's a prayer from the psalmist. We're not quite sure who that was. It might have been David. It's not identified. But whoever it was had an insight that if we're going to get this trust and obey thing right, we're going to need supernatural help. We're going to need God to send forth his light and his truth so that his light and his truth will guide us. David, we know, said something similar in Psalm 119 that your word is a light unto my feet and a lamp unto my path, that it illuminates the way, it guides the way one step at a time. He doesn't lay out a five-year plan. He shows us the next step to take through his light, through his truth. And so we're asking God to give his light and his truth to our circumstances, to our situation, and to allow them to guide us as we move through life. And it strikes me as I consider those two phrases, your light and your truth, that Jesus declared that he was the light of the world. In John 8, 12, he stood up and he said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus identified himself as the light of the world, but he also said in John 14, 6, that, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth. And so if we pray this prayer in the full knowledge of the gospel, we're saying, Jesus, send me your light. Send me your truth. Let them guide me. And if we're following his light and we're following his truth, we will live a life of love. We will be able to increasingly do everything in love. And I believe, and I believe the gospel is very, very clear, that it is possible to get to the point where our will is so conformed to his will, where our thoughts are so conformed to his thoughts, that our ways and our actions are so conformed to his actions that we do everything in love, and that there's nothing we do that's not in love. It starts by trusting that his way is good and then deciding to do what he said, to know what he said and to do what he said. And so 1 Corinthians 16 is where we're going to spend the majority of our time today. And it's going to be just two short verses. Uh, there's five different commands in these two short verses, verse 13 and 14 of 1 Corinthians 16, um, where Paul kind of lays this out. This is right at the end of his letter. He's making some final requests, some final suggestions or exhortations, rather. And he says, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. And as he makes these, it's, it's kind of like he, it's this final appeal. It's this final, like, if you don't do anything else, if you, if you we're listening to somebody reading this letter out loud and your mind wandered and come back like, this is it. If you do these five things, all these other issues we've talked about go away. If you as a church, collectively, Church of Corinth, if you do these things, we're going to be fine. The gospel will go forward. And so it, it behooves us to look at what are these exhortations, and I believe they're even progressive in nature, that it starts foundationally and builds upon itself. And so it starts with be on your guard. It's like literally stay awake, be alert, pay attention. He, he's saying be vigilant. You have an enemy 
And he's identified this a number of times, that there is an enemy of God. There is an enemy. Once you join God's team, his enemy becomes your enemy. That there's, uh, there's Satan, there's all kinds of evil spirits and powerful forces that come against us when we align ourselves with God. Now, he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. He who is with us and is for us is greater than he who is against us. But it is good for us to be watchful, to pay attention to keep our eyes open because our enemy is always on the move and and defeating him in one area he just kind of circles around and comes back a different way so we got to pay attention we got to be watchful and i think inherent in this command is don't be lulled into complacency don't be lulled into a complacency that says oh everything's going to be just fine be watchful be on your guard pay attention be vigilant Don't cross over into paranoia and constant anxiety. Like, remember, he who is with us is greater than he who is against us. And God is working all things together for the good of those who loved him and are called according to his purpose. But be aware. Be watchful. Pay attention. Be on your guard. And and out of that, then he says, stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the faith. And and I think he's, he's basically saying cultivate a mature stability in God. Be firm in the faith. Be firm, be planted, be rooted. Don't be, like James said, like a wave of the sea tossed back and forth in the wind. Be firm in your faith. Send down roots, grow strong. Stand firm in your faith. Cultivate a mature stability. And back in chapter 3, he chastised the church for their immaturity, for the immaturity of their faith, that they should be farther along now than they were. And he's basically saying, stand firm in your faith. He said in the end of chapter 15, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. And here he's reminding them, stand firm in the faith that you have. Don't rest. Don't relax. Don't retreat. There are basically two postures, two postures for the people of God. We stand firm or we advance. We don't retreat. Look at Ephesians 6 where the armor of God is described in detail. There's nothing on the backside. (laughs) Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Advance as the Spirit directs. But we don't give up ground. And so we need to stand firm. Not retreat. Stand firm in the faith that we have. And we do this better together. All of these things we do better together than we do on our own. We link arms together. And we stand firm together. And where I'm weak, you can come alongside with strength. And where you're weak, I can come alongside with strength. And we are better together. And we stand firm in the collective faith that we have together. And then he adds, be courageous. Be courageous. Have the courage to stand. Have the courage to advance and to take new ground for the kingdom. In our own lives, and in our lives corporately, that, that we want the kingdom of God to be expanding in our own hearts and in our own minds, that we're not static, that, that the kingdom of God is expanding, pushing out the things that don't fit within the kingdom of God that are in our own lives. And so we have the courage to confront sin in our own lives. We have the courage to confront the temptations that we have and to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ, as Paul says. And so we have courage to stand and to advance, and to allow the kingdom of God to advance in our lives and in our community and in the world by extension, that that we have the courage to stand. And it's interesting, this phrase, and depending on what translation you have, it may have something along the lines of act like men. That's what the words literally say, act like men. And so we think about men versus women, but it's really more like men versus children. 
Adults versus children. That's the, the, the meaning of the phrase. And so it was often used in a military sense to, to encourage this people or the soldiers to act with courage and strength in response or in obedience to the orders that they had received. That was inherent. And so we see this phrase popping up, uh, telling people, act like men, act like adults. Don't be, don't be children. Be mature, be rooted, be planted, be courageous, be strong. And then he adds, literally, be strong. But it's interesting, when you look at the, the tense of all of this, it's, it's kind of like it's, it would be better to translate it, become strong. Become stronger together, grow stronger together, be strengthened by the trials, by the difficulties that you face. They are there, they can make you stronger. And so I illustrated it this way. I said, you know, if we put 300 pounds on a bar right here, and I tried to pick it up and put it over my head, would it matter how hard I tried? Would it matter how hard you cheered me on and told me, be strong, Pastor Mark. Am I going to get 300 pounds up off the ground and put it over my head? Probably not. If you think I can do that, you seriously overestimate my strength. But if I put 100 pounds on a bar... And I pick that up, and I get it to here, and then I work on form, and I keep trying, and I keep struggling, and I keep getting stronger as I do that. I could get 100 pounds over my head, right? Come on, I could get 100 pounds over my head, right? This is the audience participation portion, like, come on, do I need to go all the way down to just the bar? Could I get the bar over my head? Yes. Could I get a couple fives over my head? Yes. Don't miss the point, okay? Because we do 100, and I think I could do 100. I'll prove it if I have to. I think I could do 100. And then I could do 125. And if I got stronger, and each weight increase represents a challenge or something that is intended to make me stronger. And by, by, by the time I'd been working at it for a while, I could get 300 pounds over my head. Or even better yet, what if I say, hey, Pastor Zach, I need to get this 300 pounds up over my head. Or Jason, come help me out. And we work on it together. And maybe we can't do it on our own, but maybe two on each side. We could get 300 pounds. So we're better together, right? We're stronger together. One of the quickest and fastest ways to get stronger is to link arms with somebody else. To multiply our strength as we come together. And so it's not just saying, hey, be strong. Go get them, tiger. It's grow stronger, become strengthened, be strengthened. As you go through the trials and the challenges and the temptations of life, allow them to make you stronger. Don't become discouraged, right? He just said, be courageous. Sometimes courage is needed most when we've just failed or when we've just tried to put 300 pounds over our head in front of a, an audience and we couldn't do it or something like that and we're feeling embarrassed. And he is saying this to a community. He is saying that, that we are better together and we can grow stronger together than we can ever be on our own. And so don't miss that. All of that precedes. All of that builds up to do everything in love. Now, I don't know how many of you memorized Galatians 2.20. A few people have told me they did it. One person even recited it to me. And I encourage you to do that a couple of weeks ago, to make that a priority, to Memorize Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified in Christ. It is no longer I who live. It is Christ who lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't know how many of you did that, but I know every single one of you could memorize 1 Corinthians 16.14. 
right? It's four words. So it's twice as many as Jesus wept. That's the easiest verse to memorize in all of Scripture, John eleven thirty five. But next to it, and just as important, would be do everything in love. Do everything in love. You could probably have that memorized before you walk out of here. Do everything in love. And why do we do everything in love? Because we've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer he, I who live. It's not only me who lives. It's no longer you who lives. It's Christ who lives in us. And what did Jesus do? He did everything in love. Read the Gospels. Is there anything Jesus did that he did not do in love? That's the vision. That we would become little Christs walking around, cleverly disguised as radiologists and teachers and real estate agents and whatever else it is that God has uniquely positioned you to do, you do that as an ambassador for Christ. You do that as a little Jesus doing everything in love. And so our bottom line today is that how you do what you do matters more than what you do. What? How you do what you do matters more than what you do. If we're to temper our courage and our strength as we stand firm in the faith, as we keep watch, we're to do all of that in love, in a posture of love. We temper all of those things with love and with tenderness and an outward focus that puts others first. That's what love does. Love is not a feeling, it's a verb. It's a self-sacrificing Surrender. Every time Paul says love here, he's talking about agape love. And when we look at uh, chapter 13, the love chapter, every love is agape love. It's self-sacrificing surrender. It's putting the other first. And so when he says do everything in love, I think he's also saying if you can't do it in love, don't do it. If you can't do what you're about to do or what you think you need to do in love, don't do it. And, and so you might have to rethink it. You might have to rephrase it. You might have to refocus or reframe it so that you don't regret it. Because if we're to be ambassadors for Christ, then Christ, everything Christ did, he did in love. Then if we're about to do something that we can't do in love, then we need to rethink it. We need to reframe it. We need to refocus it. We need to say, God, I think this needs to happen. It doesn't mean that we don't ever confront issues, but we find a heart posture that is not just seeking our own benefit, it's seeking the benefit of others as well. And we say, God, help me. Help me to do what I feel needs to be done and to do it in love. And so when a relationship gets wonky and something needs to be addressed, we say, God, help me to address it in a posture of love. And so often we think that it's all about doing great things for God. And, and he would say, start doing small things with great love. I think I hijacked that from somebody. I'm not quite sure who. Maybe it was Mother Teresa. But the idea is that it's not about the big, huge things we do for God if we do them without love. Who was Jesus the harshest on in his ministry? It was the people that were basically morally perfect in regards to the law. They'd gotten it all down right, but they had no love in their hearts. And so when Paul starts in 1 Corinthians 13, which I want to spend some time on, he's basically saying it's all about a self-sacrificing surrender. It's all about putting others first. And what you say and what you do are meaningless if they're not done in love. And so I want to spend some time there because this is really one of the main themes in the whole book of 1 Corinthians is 
self-sacrificing surrender, putting others first. He talks about it in regards to divisions and hierarchies and lawsuits and the food that we eat, that we wouldn't be a stumbling block and surrendering all of our lives to God and even the spiritual gifts that he gives us. They're not for us individually. They're for the community. They're for others to benefit from as well. So I want to look at chapter 13 because it's, it's perhaps the best definition, description, of love that we see in a concise form in all of Scripture. That's why it pops up at weddings so often. And it's interesting, that was the chapter for today. If you're in the Banding Together readings as we go through 1 Corinthians, you read chapter 13 this morning, or you'll read it tonight, or you'll read it whenever you do what you do. But I want to look at it in the context of his exhortation to do everything in love. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge and have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. So he gives three different examples, a spiritual gift, a, a gift of prophecy, and being able to, to be generous. And each time he concludes, if I do all those wonderful things, but I don't have love in my heart, and I'm not doing it from a posture of love, then it's worthless. And so when I wrote the bottom line, I always like tempted, you know, gosh, how you do what you do matters more than what you do. Maybe I should say it matters as much as, or at least as much as. And then I read this passage, and I realized, no, that's exactly what Paul is saying. It's exactly what he's saying. How we do, and why we do, The things that we do matters more than what we do. The motive behind it and the way that we do it matters a great deal. Are we doing it from a heart that's surrendered to God, that has truly put other people first? Or are we doing it for some kickback, for some benefit of our own, or out of pride or selfishness or ego? He's saying how you do what you do matters more than what you do. It must be done in love. Do everything in love. And then he defines love in the next few verses, verses 4 through 8. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. That's the love that we're to do everything with. We love like that. We love in that way. And this is love defined, but this is also God defined, right? You can take the word love or the word it out and you can put God in each one of those statements. God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy. God does not boast. And all the way down through there. And they give you a picture of your heavenly father. And can you trust somebody that is all of those things? Absolutely. You can trust somebody that is all those things. And God is all those things. And here's the vision. Here's the, the, the vision of doing everything in love is that we get to the point where we can put our name in there. Mark is patient. Mark is kind. Mark does not envy. Mark does not boast. Mark is not proud. And we go all the way through that and we put our name in there for love because we are called to live lives of love. We are called to do everything in love. And then he concludes this love chapter 
By kind of making a point that really only the things that are done in love are going to matter for eternity, are going to last forever. He says in the second half of verse 8, but where there are prophecies, they will cease, this spiritual gift that you might have. Where there are tongues, they'll be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it'll pass away. For now we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. Like perfection is coming and all of our feeble attempts will fail, will, will disappear. When I was a child, I talked like a child and I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. I matured, I grew. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. He's saying there is a completion that is coming to all of this. And then he adds, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Where all that other stuff was temporary, faith, hope, and love are not temporary. And everything that we do in love matters, and it bears fruit, and it advances the kingdom. And so he concludes this section actually in chapter 14, verse 1, not at the end of chapter 13. Chapter 14, verse 1 says, follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. But don't forget, don't miss that command. It's the first command we've had since the end of chapter 12. He says, follow the way of love. There is a way of love, and he's just described the way of love to us, and we are to follow it and do everything in love. You can't follow the way of love selfishly. You can only follow the way of love by doing everything in love. And that's the point that he's making as he concludes this section And it's sandwiched right in between two chapters on spiritual gifts. He's basically saying there's all these spiritual gifts, but if you do them without love, it's not going to matter. It's not going to accomplish God's purpose. We need to have hearts that have been transformed by the gospel that truly do everything in love. So when he says that, I believe he means everything. I believe the Greek language does not let us off the hook on this either. It means everything. It means all. It's the Greek word pan. It's all of it. Do everything you do in love. That's the vision. To follow Christ so closely, to be so in step with the Spirit, that all we see in our lives is the fruit of the Spirit, and that we consistently go out and do everything in love. Why? Because how we do what we do matters more than what we do. So whether you're serving in kids' way, or you're holding a front door, or you're going out into the community to serve people in love at the gospel mission, or at lunches served by packing meals, or somewhere else that is close to your heart and your passion, you do those things with love. And you don't just walk by somebody you know is hurting, or you don't just walk by somebody you know who's far from God without sharing, pointing them to God in some way, because you want to do everything, everything in love. And even our giving, as, as we think about that, later in the service, there'll be an opportunity to give. And he says God loves a cheerful giver, somebody who gives in love, who gives sacrificially out of a joyful heart, joyful for the opportunity to participate in the expansion of God's kingdom through our stewardship. It all fits together, and everything we do, we can do in love. And we can serve one another in love, and we can advance the kingdom of God in love, and we can grow closer to tr- Christ in love. And so as we close, I want to just encourage you to respond. I always ask you to respond because it's not meant to be a passive thing. Church is not meant to be a passive thing where we just walk in, sit down, observe, 
get up and leave. There's a part that we have to play in worship as we pour out our hearts to God in worship, as we hear from the Word, as we respond in faith to the Word. So you can come to the altars. There are altars down front. Those of you that are watching online or here in the room, you can make an altar where you're seated. And you can make a commitment to God. You can pray to God. You can respond in faith to God. If you come to these middle two altars, we'll take that as a clue that you would like to pray alone. If you come to the outside altars, we'll take that as a clue that you'd like somebody to come and to pray with you. And somebody will meet you there and and pray with you. If you'd like somebody to pray with you, you can do that. If you want to put a prayer request on the cross there and leave that as a symbol of your response in faith, all of those are options to you. But my hope and my prayer is that, that you will respond in some way. God wants to see you respond to his word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it speaks to us. We thank you for the clarity and the simplicity of today's scripture to do everything in love. Lord, help us to take that seriously. Help us to truly do everything we do in love and move towards that. And if you brought things to mind for others, as I know you have for me, that weren't done in love, that weren't said in love, that weren't motivated by love, Help us to repent from that, Lord. Help us to turn 180 degrees from selfishness and pride and anger and to walk in step with your spirit. To do everything we do in love. It's in Jesus' name we pray.